Father, would you help us to be people of greater and greater praise for you? Would our lives come into just tune with with what it is that you're doing in this world so that out of our life might come just a never-ending praise through how we speak, how we sing, how we live. Man, would we enjoy what that means to be ones who were created to praise you. We ask all these things in your precious son's name. Amen. All right, have a seat. Now, this is going to be fun. Um, For those of you that come to the 9 o'clock service, I'm up here preaching early. For those of you that are going to show up for the 9.15 service, it's going to be like, why is he already up there? Like, what in the world is going on? We're going to do things a little bit differently for the next um, four weeks. And so don't be surprised if all of a sudden at 9 o'clock we start preaching or at, who knows, 10 o'clock and you're wondering, why? Why is the preaching already all of a sudden happening now? Because I just, who knows, we might just want to do a two-hour service just because. Amen. But what we're doing is we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. If, uh, if you haven't been with us, uh, you, uh, you'll, we've been studying through that particular book, just trying to understand what Paul's telling us. One of the things I've said over and over about this particular book of the Bible is, is I do think First and Second Corinthians, of any two books that were written in the Bible, if they were not written for our time and our place right now, then man, you're missing uh, so much of what it is. But I'm not going to use a lot of slides today. And so if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible. So I've got some people coming down the aisles. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand. Uh, we'd love to get a Bible in your hands. Uh, if you don't know kind of where things are in the Bible, um, we've all been there. Um, just look at the person across from you and say, I have no clue what even Corinthians is. And, uh, and they'll be able to help you out. Or you can even look in the front uh, just uh, uh, to be able to find out what the table of contents. The other thing you might need is a pen, um, unless you're someone like me who takes notes in your phone, because we're going to do some things where you might, uh, might want to write some stuff down, and you might wanna, or you might want to type some things into your phone. But we're going we're gonna to be talking today about this thing called conflict. Now, the th- reality of conflict is, is that everybody in here, let me say this again, Everybody in here today will experience conflict. I don't care who you are, you're going to experience conflict. Now, some of you are hearing this right now, and you're going to say this to yourself, oh, I stink at conflict. Well, you're being honest. If right now you're in here saying, I'm good at conflict, you are lying to yourself. I have never met anybody that is good at conflict. I've only read about him, and his name is Jesus. And so with that, we're going to be kind of exploring down and trying to kind of wrestle through conflict. Now, one of the things that I hope to show you is that in 2 Corinthians, I think Paul puts together a master's class on how to do conflict. I think he puts this letter together in just a phenomenal way. I've kind of held back on this in some ways, but I really do think 2 Corinthians is a letter that shows us how it is that we're to have conflict with one another, how, how we carry it out. Now, a lot of times when I say conflict, some of you in here start to cringe, but let, let me see if I can give you a different picture of conflict. Anybody that knows me um, well knows that I'm like a sucker for Hallmark movies. Is anybody else like a sucker for Hallmark movies? That totally, I'll give up my man card later. It's totally cool. But I, man, there's some about Hallmark movies. Now, the reason I like Hallmark movies is because even Hallmark movies have conflict, but they, you know how like their conflict always gets resolved at the end? I hate movies that don't have resolution. 
Like if I finish a movie and the conflict's not resolved, like I want to chase down the producer and the, all those people and just beat them up. Like, no, we need to have resolution of conflict. But the thing about conflict is, is that, the, or let me just say this, the beauty of conflict is not necessarily when we're going through it because conflict is just messy. There's nothing enjoyable about it. It's, it's terribly uncomfortable. Uh, in fact, the other thing I don't like, like in movies or books, have you ever watched the movie and it gets to that weird tense point where it's either funny comedy or it's tense and you want to just leave the room because it's just so tense in the conflict of the moment. That's what conflict tends to do to us. But conflict done rightly will always come, even if it's not the solution that we want at the end, the resolution at the end, conflict that's done rightly always gets brought to a resolution. And this is what Paul's seeking to do in this particular letter as he's putting it together. Now, the Bible's a book full of conflict. I mean, when you read it ever since the fall, God and man have been in conflict. We know that. We're constantly talking about the gospel that now allows for this conflict resolution to happen between God and man. We, we see it even in, in the way that the Jews and Gentiles interplayed together. There was conflict. In the Old Testament, you had Abraham and Lot that had conflict. In the New Testament, in Galatians 2, you see Peter and Paul who have conflict. It's just a book full of conflict. But the thing about it is, is every aspect of the conflict in the Bible is always seeking to bring it to resolution. God sent his son because there was enmity between him and man, and he became the resolution whereby which now man can enter into that right relationship with God. See, everything about what God is doing since the fall has been about resolution, and I feel like in our minds, the reason that we don't like resolution is, or don't like conflict, excuse me, is because we don't think in the long term about what conflict brings. Now, for some of you in here, let's just lay out these two types because we're going to be going through this. We're going to go through this passage that we're going to go through today four different times. So if you don't get it the first time, by the fourth time, we'll we'll all understand it together. But there's generally two types of of, of ways in which we experience conflict. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, so don't raise your hand. But in the back of your head, how many of you are conflict avoiders? Okay, now just think about it. I see a few smiles, so I, I can tell there's a few of you there. Now, in some ways, I tend to be a conflict avoider if I don't think there's going to be a resolution. I'm the kind of person that's just like, if there's no resolution, then stinks to be you, I'm out of it, right? That tends to be how I avoid. But then there's another type of person that's called the conflict seeker. Have you ever met one of those? See, she's smiling. She knows. She's like the... Now, for me, I grew up in a family where one of my parents was a conflict avoider and one was a conflict seeker. Now you put those two people together and their kids are just messed up. Now I can't say that in the next service because my mom's going to be here, but, <laughs> but I'll say it now, right? So that way we're talking behind her back because gossip is a wonderful thing. But it's just this reality that conflict is just this weird thing. And it's just a hard way to try to understand it because I do think sometimes the spirit empowers us to avoid conflict. And sometimes the spirit empowers us to seek conflict. Now, the thing that I want to try to convince you of today that I think Paul's going to lay out here today is that the problem with our conflict is we tend to think about ourselves first in conflict. I tend to think about myself first, and then after thinking about myself, I then decide what I'm going to do with conflict. So, case in point, I tend to be, like I said, the one that thinks that nothing's going to get resolved, so I I will at times avoid until finally, has anybody ever got to that point where somebody just barrages you long enough? And then what do you do? 
snap. Oh, like I know, like I don't look like, I, I know I'm a lover, not a fighter. But gosh, man, I will just, you know, go, and out of it will come. Why? Because we're going to resolve this conflict and we're going to tear it apart and get it done. Why? Because I am offended or I am struggling or I am uncomfortable. It is just this reality of conflict. Now, what Paul's going to do, though, that I think is so key here that we're going to start to kind of look through a little bit is that when conflict, though, is about Jesus and his kingdom, conflict is completely different. So in other words, when I am at home and I come home on many times and, and I want it to be about me and I walk through the door and I'm thinking I'm just going to go stare at paint, I am having right at that moment a conflict inside of who I am with the kingdom because Todd and his kingdom will walk through the door and his wife will say, oh, husband, hark, how art thou? Welcome into thine abode. Welcome. And my children come out, you know, like, But how often does that happen? <laughs> and I'm sitting in my car many times and I'm going, okay, God, I know I'm about ready to have a kingdom conflict because I'm going in there and the problem is me. I want to make it about me. Every morning when you wake up, you may not even realize it, but you are entering a kingdom conflict. Now, what Paul's going to do with us in this text, though, is to show us how it is, though, that conflict, when it's about the kingdom, the correct kingdom, Jesus Christ, is that in this now, this is where God does some of his best work in the conflict. The person that is an avoider by nature will tend to pull back and miss the opportunity to see God's power in conflict to bring about resolution. And the one that's kind of that, that person that's the conflict seeker, they're the ones that come into it, you know, to just tell it the truth and this is how it is and I'm so glad that you have me as, my, as your friend. And then as they come into the conflict, there's 50 people in their wake missing though, again, resolution and seeing Jesus do a great work. There's some of you in your friendships, your relationships, your marriages, you know you need to have conflict, but you're avoiding it. And the problem with avoiding conflict, and this is what Paul's going to get out here, the problem with avoiding conflict that's already present that moment is you know this, the bill eventually comes due and it's always worse. You know you need to, you know you need to address an issue. Or even in the back of your head, you're thinking, that's right, I'm going to go deal with the issue. But you don't go in thinking about the kingdom, about what Jesus is trying to do here in my family, in my friendships, in my workplace, in my church. We're not thinking that way. And in the end, it only gets worse and worse and worse. And that's what Paul's getting after here. This group of people called the Corinthians, he loves and he adores them. He's going to show them how to do conflict. Now, here's the thing that we're going to do with this. We're going to talk about it in this way. Here's the two key ideas we're going to go through today, okay? So, so buckle in. These are our, kind of our two key ideas. The first idea is this. Conflict is unavoidable. Okay, let me just say that again. Conflict is absolutely unavoidable. Here's the second thing. Good conflict, though, demands a resolution 
that we actually know what the problem is. So that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to ask the question, looking at this text that we're in right now, how does Paul see the actual problem? Because I think sometimes we don't, we're not sure what is the actual problem. So what does Paul say is the actual problem? Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the conflict supposed to come to or what's the resolution. We're going to look at how to do it on the third week. And then we're going to look at the fourth week. What if it doesn't go the way that I want to? Okay, so that's what we're going to go today. We're going to look at the problem. So if you got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to dive in there just a little bit. 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to be starting off in verse 12. Now, I'm going to sweep through this pretty fast, so you got to keep up with me, all right? So same thing, 2 Corinthians. Do what I'm thinking, not what I say. That's how I parent. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> What's that? Billy's fault. fault, yeah. So everybody got 2 Corinthians? Now that Terry screwed up? Okay. All right. Now here's what Paul's been doing in 2 Corinthians. He's been kind of hitting around the problem. He's not quite yet addressing the problem. Now what he's going to do by the time we get to 2 Corinthians 10, 12, is he's going to really start to lay out for us, here is the problem. Now, the thing about sometimes working through conflict is, is it takes a long time to get there. In fact, we look back at 1 Corinthians, and Paul still didn't kind of have the problem that was going on. It He was kind of dealing with symptoms of what was going on inside the church. But by the time he comes to 2 Corinthians, man, he has the problem. And the thing that he's going to connect it to are this group of people that he calls the super apostles. And you can kind of see that in 2 Corinthians 11.5 and then also in 2 Corinthians 12.11. If you kind of look in your Bible, you'll see this term super apostles that he gave them that particular name. Now, you know if a guy calls somebody super apostles, does everybody get tongue-in-cheek? He's like, yeah, these super great, wonderful apostles. He's, he's laying out this idea of how they perceive themselves. Now, all the way back in 2 Corinthians 2.17, though, we start to learn who these, these particular people are, is they were the so many that were peddling God's word. In 3.1, they were using letters of recommendation. In other words, they had letters after the name to be able to say how great that they are. When you're in 2 Corinthians 4.2, they were people that tampered with Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5.12, they were ones who loved positions of authority. And Chris kind of addressed on that last week, just this idea of authority. And even as you keep reading along, especially by the time you come to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and following, they were these people that were putting up obstacles for us to be able to get to Jesus. Now, the question, though, is, is what made them so bad? What was it about them? To the point even where Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 and 7 has to say, don't have anything to do with those people. Those people that are doing all these things, they're leading you astray in some kind of a way. And I want you to know that to go after them will only bring, and in fact, he brings out this word, destruction. If you can just kind of think about it as a parent trying to talk to their kid about the friendships that they have and the way that the very end of this, this particular relationship will only bring destruction. But he's kind of had this thing simmering in the background and all of a sudden you're going to watch Paul who's kind of been dealing with this issue, trying to bring it to a boil. He finally sets the main issue right out in front of him and he uses it with the super apostles. Now, when you look down at verse 13, look down in there. In verse 13, does everybody see that word boast? Does everybody see that? He's going to use this term or this, this word boast. 
Now, it was great. This particular week when we were in sermon prep, we were working through that idea of what does it mean to boast. And, and uh, Christian Burkhart, one of the pastors here on staff, has been working through some things in Hebrew for his, uh, for his seminary classes. And he talked about this idea of a boast actually being this idea of praise. So what he's going to say here is, let me just praise here for a little while. Let me, let me kind of talk this through for a little bit so that you can understand the problem with these particular guys that I'm going after. Now, these super apostles, he's saying to them, they boast, but uniquely, they boast in themselves. Now, here's the key thing of conflict. If you're writing something down, if you're working through it, the major problem of conflict is a total love of myself. Every form of conflict finds its position in the fact that I I am the one who is wronged. I am the one who needs, reconcil- needs things to be reconciled correctly. I, 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 I. And this is what Paul is going to start to go after. In fact, the way that he explains it, it's kind of hard to see in 10, 13 through 16, but he's laying out this idea of this group of people that Paul had come in and said, no, your life actually is not about you. Your life is about Jesus Christ. You were created to praise. In fact, every one of you in here, you are going to praise something. And so what Paul says is don't make your praise about yourself, but to make your praise about Jesus Christ. And behind him had come these super apostles and they'd said, no, 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 no. Man, you need to take care of you. Now this happens in pretty insidious ways. This happens in ways in which I feel like I'm wronged by my spouse. So I go find my friends and my friends begin to tell me, take care of you. You've been wronged. You're the one who needs to seek, you know, some type of a recompense and what's going on here. You, 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 that's what you need. Now, all the while they're telling you those things many times because they're seeking in some way to not have their own conflict because oftentimes people don't want to tell you the truth about you. Paul is saying this group of people has snuck in and they have made it about themselves. And not only have they made it about themselves, but the way that they can now draw themselves to you is to tell you how wonderful you are. And it's all about you. On the back of your head, you're probably thinking, well, who's going to take care of me? Well, the whole point of the Bible is God is. He's got us. Right? We're always so worried. Who's going to take care of me? And we have to remind ourselves that the song early, I am a child of not a bad position if you're a follower of Jesus. But these guys were sneaking in and they're telling them, you need to take care of you, which by the way, that is the way that our world so thinks. If you don't take care of you, then who will take care of you? And the Bible reminds us over and over again, don't find your refuge in that. You find your refuge in God who has you. Now what he does in 11.1, when you look down there, he's gonna choose to use another word. So let me pull this one out. After talking about this idea of of, of bragging, he now says, look, just kind of go with me for my foolishness for a second. Well, why would he say that? Because it makes no sense. What I just said right now, if I said it away from this particular church, people would be like, well, that's stupid not to make it about you. He's saying, just go with me for a second. Just, Just be foolish with me for here just a little bit. 
Now, what he's going to do is, is it, and again, this is why I use the idea of a parent. He's going to start to con- kind of connect this dot for them, this idea of now these people that are seeking to make it about you. What are they really after? Now, look down at verse 2. In verse 2, he uses this idea, and you'll see that in there. He kind of views himself almost now as this one who's the best man protecting his fiance's bride. He's even talking about it, and this is the way to maybe imagine it. If you're a a person from the 80s like I was, do you remember all the movies from the 80s where the jock, the good-looking jock, always got the chick? But he didn't want the chick for any other reason that he wanted to, and I don't know how else to say this, but to take advantage of her what? Sexually. He didn't want her for her. He wanted her for what he could what? Get from her. Paul says, you know what those dudes are doing? They're just using you. They're telling you about yourself. They're telling you how wonderful you are. Just like that good looking jock tells that unsuspecting girl in order to now take her in and take advantage of her. That's the first image he uses. Look down in verses three and four. In verses three and four, he moves from the image of this guy trying to protect his best friend's uh, spouse. And specifically that church was one who was to be wedded to the great one, Jesus Christ. And in verses three through four, he's kind of now treating the church like it was Eve that was gonna be deceived by that serpent. And now Adam becomes the good one, who, the good Adam who steps in and protects them from any harm. Look at verses seven through 11. In this particular instance, he's now talking about himself more in the line of a father, a dad who's trying to protect his kids from going down a wrong path. He's looking at them saying, those friends out there that are telling you those particular things, the only reason they're doing that is they want you to join into their folly of making life about themselves, but I'm your dad. I'm the one who looks over to you. In fact, he, he talks about this idea when you look in 7 through 11 of him now being the one that provides for them. I will never forget, I was a kid, and, and I don't know how many of you as, as kids grew up, but I wanted a dirt bike. I had, there was this great dirt bike that I really wanted. It was a Kuahara. Anybody remember that? Losers. Anyways, <laughs> I really wanted this bike. And my friends kept telling me how it was that I'm going to manipulate my father to get that bike. And they said, one of the things you can do is make him feel bad. And by making him feel bad, you can tell him things like you're not, he's not providing for you. And he needs to give you better things. And I came into my dad and I laid out my case for what a terrible provider he was for me. <laughs> okay, he kept quiet, but my grandma was listening to it. Okay, you don't do this anymore, but my grandma hit me so hard against the back of the head, my teeth almost came out, right? It was crap. But I just remember turning around and she was in my face so fast going, your dad, and she just began to lay out what it was like for him to love me. Paul is saying, these guys are just using you for your things. In verses now 12 through 15, he talks about these people being an angel of light. Does everybody see that down there? They're just these, these angels of light, just like Satan was, who was coming in and they look so good to you. Everything about them looks good. But at the end of it, his point is they will only end up deceiving you. And by the time we get to 1621 through 20, or 1621a, especially down in verse 20, they are going to get you, they're going to use you, they're going to beat you up, and then they're going to spit you out, just like kind of the bad boyfriend that that brings in a woman, abuses her, kicks her out, and then she goes back to him. He's just, this is the image he's trying to convey in their head. This is what he's trying to help them to understand. This conflict he's saying is so important because it has such huge ramifications. 
He's wanting them to get this idea. They're going to deceive you that it's about you. They're going to tell you it's all about you. But in the end, it is only going to lead to your destruction. Let me just, let me just say this right out. Many of you have friends that tell you this very thing. And let me just be the one that's going to be honest with you right in this moment. The friends that tell you it's all about you and all about your happiness and all about, in the end, how it is that you can make yourself the satisfied, fulfilled human being at the expense of other people, they are lying to you. This is what Paul's saying. Why? It's not that it's not about our happiness, right? Some of you are sitting out there going, my gosh, this guy's angry. I'm really not angry. It's about where you find your happiness in. He's presenting something so much greater. He's coming to this and it's like, I know you're making this about your kingdom and your wants and your desires, but I'm here to tell you that making your life about Jesus Christ, the one who loves you, who gave his life for you, who rescued you out of darkness, that is beautifying you and making you into the man or the woman that he wants you to be and will one day come back and gather you and will spend the rest of eternity lavishing his love on you. Don't sell out for cheap thrills in this life when Jesus Christ is offering you so much more. Don't do it. And he's pleading with them. What's he doing? He's trying to help us to understand that this conflict that we're in is a conflict between my kingdom and the kingdom. My kingdom being about what does it look like to have the best life now versus his kingdom, which what does it look like now to make the most of the king of kings and lord of lords in our lives? And the promise of following that king is hope and joy and peace and contentment. Paul says, don't you dare sell out. And when I was a youth pastor, I just remember at times pleading with them. I get that this world is trying to sell you a bill of goods, but Jesus is offering you so much more than this world can ever offer. And in fact, those of you in here that are under the, under the age of 25, don't buy the bill of goods of make yourself everything you can now when we know the fact that it is all about this reality that Jesus is coming back one day and you can make your life completely and totally about him now. And when you stand before him and he says, well done, good and safe, faithful servant. You will not regret in the least what you've given up in this life for the reward of what you receive from the king one day. Don't sell out. The husband that looks at a woman and thinks, oh, I would love to have this woman that's not my wife. Don't you dare sell out. The woman that looks at her husband, it's not me personally, but like you, maybe some of you, Man, he's gotten fat and bald and he's a slob and he doesn't romance me like, I'm going to go find it in somebody else. Don't buy the lie. Paul is now getting into this and here's the problem. The problem is we make too often things about my kingdom instead of the kingdom. This is really what our, all of our difficulty that we face comes down to is my kingdom. Now, in case we don't get that, by the time you get to verse 22 in chapter 11, he has this kind of an idea in which, sure, I could, act, I could tell you all the great things I am. He says in there, verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. In other words, he's just saying, look, we could get into this kind of a game. 
I'll never forget the first time my, my sister brought home this guy that was kind of like what you see in verse 20, the guy that was taking advantage of her over and over again. Now, my dad, he was like the most mellow dude on the planet. He was like this. So in other words, when you'd look at him and he would say, what does your sad face look like? What does your happy face look like? But when a man started to take advantage of my sister, all of a sudden, daddy had emotions. Now, my dad could have come in and said, well, did you know how fast I used to run when I was in high school? Did you know this? Did you know that? You know what he appealed to? And I'll still never forget this, what he appealed to. I remember us sitting out there on the driveway and he didn't talk about this or that, about how great he was. I remember him pleading with my sister at that moment, do you understand how much I love you and how much I'm seeking to protect you? It's not about how great I am, how wonderful I am. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying to them, it's not about those things. I can get into that, but it's about my love for you. Look down at verses 30 through 33. In fact, he said, I didn't seek to win you over now by this idea of showing you how great I am. In fact, I came to you almost cowardly. I seemed in a way like I was weak, but don't misunderstand this weakness. My weakness was there because as we go down into chapter 12, my weakness is there so that you might see Jesus. Why? Because look at this, verse 10, chapter 12, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I'm what? Strong. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be weak, to be this one who, who makes their life not about themselves, but about Jesus. But Paul is sitting there saying, this is what I was sowing amongst you. And this particular group of people that keeps coming in, they're missing the point. They were having a kingdom conflict. And every day when we wake up, we enter into a kingdom conflict. You will go home today in the car and one of you will get upset and you will want to make it about your kingdom, but it's not about you. You'll get home today and your children want to watch PJ Masks and you want to watch the game. So you will beat them and you will watch what you want. No, no. It's a kingdom conflict. All the way throughout our day, we're just coming into conflict after conflict and conflict. And let me ask you this question. What would happen if instead of making it about me, we stopped in the midst of that conflict and we asked, what does it look like to be about the kingdom? What does it look like in this moment that I'm struggling with my kids to make it about the kingdom? What does it look like in my marriage when I make it about the kingdom? What does it look like when I make my conflict at work about the kingdom? What does it look like in my friendships, in my relationships, in, in my church partnerships, all these different things? What does it look like to not make it about me, but to make it about the kingdom? And this is what Paul is getting at, his conflict. He had made it about the kingdom. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to bring up Two people that I absolutely love and adore, Billy and Sarah Kappen. And they're going to actually lead us in a worship in a very unique way. So I'm going to turn them loose. We're actually going to dance for you guys. We have this choreographed thing that we do. Um, it's pretty special, actually. <clears throat> no, we're not. I promise. But you know what Terry Earwood does always ask? He always asks if uh, 
I want him to get up and do an interpretive dance in like he does has this leotard thing that I guess he wears sometimes. Is that true, Terry? I mean, We're squirreling. Okay, yeah, squirrel. Okay, so I have a question. Who in this room has had some sort of conflict in the last two months? Big or small? Who? Okay, now look around. Keep the hands up. Got to look around. Who's had some sort of conflict? Yeah, we all have. So the reality is conflict is unavoidable in this broken and fallen world that we, <clears throat> that we live in. And we are. We're always in that battle of two, whether it's, it's all about me, whether it's all about you, or if it's truly about, about the Lord. And whether we want to address conflict in life, it will always come our way. So we have the opportunity to either push into it or avoid it. And we have to make that choice. The tricky thing is that oftentimes we don't know, unless, unless I'm the only one in this way, we don't really know what the problem is we're fighting about. Is that true? Does anyone else feel that way? Most of the time, I feel like in relationship, we're arguing around what the real problem is. So staying in the weeds. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally does. So we thought it would be kind of fun to talk about in our relationship. Really fun. Maybe not fun. <laughs> but in our relationship, um, just kind of how we navigate that. And um, I think it was actually, was it last week? I think it was last week. Last week we were driving home from a date and um, we were talking about a friend that was coming to stay with us, this friend that we love. and Super good into a date, obviously. <laughs> and... Uh, we're talking about just the different parameters of, you know, how long they were coming for and what that was going to entail. And we were negotiating different things. You heard the word negotiating, right? And um, so it, it kind of got a little bit more heated and more heated and more heated. And, uh, and we were obviously missing each other. I mean, we pulled into our little carport in our Ford Focus and um, we were kind of just sitting there at odds and both pretty frustrated with one another. And Sarah asked, which I think was a a brilliantly spirit-empowered question in the moment. She asked, what is underneath all of this for both of us? Like, what's what's underneath all of it? And it was almost like this, like the air got sucked out of our car for a second. Has anyone kind of experienced like a moment like that? And, um, And it gave us great pause, like to actually sit and think and think what it was. And at the end of the day, like we... We just were, we were missing each other in the conversation. I was making it all about me. She was making it about her. And we weren't really taking the time to just see each other in the moment. And asking that question in the middle of a conflict gave us the opportunity to pause and, um, and really think about what it was that we were actually negotiating, so to speak. Um, we've also found in our relationship, one of the greatest gifts that you can have um, is outside feedback. And when I say outside feedback, I am talking about all of you here in this room. All of us need each other in different ways. We've had this amazing man in our lives. Um, his name is Hud McWilliams. He's a 75-year-old guy who's been a pastor for years and a psychologist. And, and he helped us like significantly in the early years of our marriage. Really figure, Still does. <laughs> yeah, still does. But... Um, but really kind of figure out like those, does anybody else just kind of like seemingly argue around the same things like time and time again? Is it kind of like circular? Like, and you find yourself every once in a while in this moment where it's like, you're just arguing around and around in the same circle and you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. And you're like, how do we get here? 
Or is it just us? No? Okay. So HUD's been so instrumental in helping us kind of talk through some of those things and um, just helping us assess some of that in our lives. And it's been a true gift. Yeah. And to see that what's the real problem happening? Like Todd's talking about, we're arguing about this or that, that might be our own kingdom stuff, but what's, what's Jesus want for you in this? Are you, are you fighting for your marriage here? Are you fighting for unity or your own stuff? Mm -hmm. So true. So what do you think, um, what do you think I am? Am I like a conflict avoider? <laughs> okay, so Todd talked about two different roles, right? Avoider, conflict avoider, conflict seeker. Um, and so in our relationship, I'm typically the conflict avoider and Billy's the conflict seeker. So like Todd was talking about, that's sort of, yeah, trouble. <laughs> um, so though, what's we can act out of those roles in spirit-empowered ways or in the flesh. And so we thought we'd talk about some ways that that's shown up in our relationship in both spirit-empowered ways and flesh, too. Um, So I'll talk about being an avoider. Like Todd said, I uh, do not appreciate the tension that comes in the moment of conflict, so I want to avoid that at all costs. And... um, I don't want to displease Billy or upset him. So it's just better if I just keep things to myself, I think, you know. So in the flesh, as an avoider, I can think of one specific time. Um, Early in our relationship, I um, had been sort of gathering all this data of things Billy had done wrong, right? And and the ways he'd hurt me. The list goes on, and it goes (laughs) on, and it goes on, and on. And so I was thinking, you know, I justifying in my avoider mind that I was do- actually, this was the Christ-like thing to do, right? I was forgiving him and not making like a huge deal out of something and I'm just going to let it go. But in the end, I'm not really letting it go, right? It's, it's mentally logged in my list. So um, I <laughs> could only take this for so long because that's what happens, right? Like eventually it's going to, like the dam's going to break and uh, I came to Billy with a literal list of grievances. Like, I wrote it down. <laughs> and I just read the list to him of, like, things, which you can, I mean, that's horrible, right? Like, that's not going to end well. Like, what am I expecting is going to happen from that? And really, I think in the end, that's, that's my kingdom, right? Like, well, how is he going to make that right? Something he did way too long ago, I don't even want to say. And... if I had approached it in the moment, it would have actually given us the chance to connect and be unified as opposed to just building up this list that was eventually going to, you know, explode. (laughs) Oh, that was fun. I don't do that anymore, clearly. That was that one time. Mm -hmm. I I will say, I think the beautiful thing that I've appreciated about Sarah, especially someone who tends to be a conflict avoider, I think when you're walking in the spirit in that, and obviously I'm not an avoider. Um, when you're walking in the spirit in that way, you, I've watched her time and again, like where I at times will make a mountain out of a molehill because I want to, you know, kind of like tell somebody that I think they're wrong. She will see kind of like the bigger picture and she'll be gracious in a moment and let something just kind of go until there's a better time to really kind of talk it out in some way. And I, I, I mean, this has happened several times in our in our marriage, but who, uh, who has heard of like, has anyone heard of the term like hangry before? 
this hangry term? Yeah, everybody has? So when you're hungry, you get kind of angry. And um, so I was, I, we, were, we were talking last night about this, and I was recalling a time where I had, you know, I'd walked in from like a long day, and I was, I was hungry and hangry. And I, uh, I was just short. I was short with Sarah. I wasn't kind. I didn't like see her, you know, I didn't kind of just acknowledge her in, in, a, in a way. And in a sense, metaphorically, I kind of just stepped on her really, at the end of the day. <clears throat> and um, thinking back on it, she like, she could have totally in that moment just said, you big jerk, like what's going on with you? Why I've just been waiting to talk to you. And, and she didn't, she kind of just, she kind of let me have my moment in some way. And we sat down to have dinner and she began to ask me about my day and we were talking and, um, and then she circled back around in this gracious and kind way and let me know how I impacted her when I walked in the house. And it gave like such a great opportunity to, for me just to be able to say, I'm so sorry. Like, I, I would never want to do that. And obviously it was all about my kingdom. And, and um, hunger. And hunger. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things I appreciate about when I think, and that goes for a lot of, I think, conflict avoiders when they're walking in the spirit, they just have this patience about them. And <clears throat> now when it comes to the flesh in my world, being a conflict seeker, I can tell you that you are wrong and I am right. If you disagree with me, I can then argue around that point five or six different ways until you try to step over onto my side of the line, even if that doesn't happen. And I think that's, I mean, that's, you know, at the worst sense, right? But, but I think conflict seekers obviously make it about them. They're not willing to see, I'm not willing to see someone else's perspective if I'm really in the flesh and in a bad way. And um, Lord, help me. <laughs> so, but Billy, um, as a conflict seeker in the spirit, something that has really inspired me actually as an avoider in that is, um, well, okay, so before we got married, we took this uh, test called Strength Finders and for an organization we worked for. And it gives you a list of like your strengths or characteristics that you have. And one of Billy's was Harmony. And I was certain that was wrong <laughs> because like retake the test because you love conflict. So how can that be? And that the more I read about harmony and its actual definition, somebody who has this, um, it's not that they love conflict, but they love and value relationship and connection. And so they can see that conflict is necessary in connecting and having that relationship. And so as an avoider, we might go around it, and what we're really doing is just creating a distance between that other person. So um, walking through that process with him and us learning and the wise counsel of trusted godly people outside of us, we've been able to learn that walking in the spirit in conflict means in the right way, at the right time, um, moving towards each other in it. And that instead of this scary, horrifying thing, although it's, I'm not saying it doesn't stop feeling that way, <laughs> it um, for me at least, um, it's the opportunity to display Jesus in this broken, disconnected world to um, advocate for love and connection and unity. I think uh, 
what's so profound about this reality in our lives is that we truly, as the church, we have everything that we need to move towards conflict in, in a healthy and Christ-honoring way. And 2 Peter 1.3 reminds us that it's his power that has been given to us. We have everything we need for life and godliness. His power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. It's the spirit and his power working through us. It's not a striving for perfection. It's listening and being attentive to the spirit in our lives and living in accordance with God's word that gives us all that we need to be able to move towards one another in conflict so that we all might grow up into Jesus. And I want to invite you, we, we both do want to invite you, um, for the next 10 minutes, Diana Nelson's going to come up and she's going to just play some instrumental music behind us. And um, we're just going to worship in a different way. We're going to worship through reflection. It's not something we normally do here at church. Um, I mean, I love to sing. I'll sing till the day I die. I love to worship Jesus. But we're going to take some time and just reflect. And we have three questions that we would love for you just to personally ask yourself. So if you've got a notebook or you have you know, a smartphone that has like an, a phone app, pull that out. Or you've got a bulletin you can write on the back of the bulletin. And Sarah's just going to walk us through these questions. And then I'm going to pray. Screen too. And the questions are on the screen. <laughs> yeah. They should be. Okay. So when you have conflict, what role do you take? Do you tend to avoid conflict or seek conflict? You might find yourself doing both different times, different situations. But in reflecting on your own motives in those times of conflict, what's motivated you to either avoid or seek? What's been the outcome of either avoiding or seeking conflict in your life? And secondly, who or what do you generally see as the problem? Is it yourself, others, past baggage, outside forces? And then finally, do you have friendships in your life that help you identify the problem, my kingdom, so that you can have conflict for the kingdom? Or do you ha- and do you have a posture that allows and invites this kind of feedback from your friends? Or on the other side of this, do your friendships tend to intensify the problem by coddling your desire for my kingdom? So these questions will be up on the screen and we're going to take the next 10 minutes. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we so desperately want to be people that honor you with our lives. That don't run from the hard things. And yet at the same time, don't force things on people that are not theirs. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would do work in us as we sit and reflect on these realities of who you've called us to be, who we are right now, and who you're inviting us to become. I thank you so much that your grace is sufficient in our lives. And I thank you that you truly have given us all that we need for life and godliness. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, so if you got a phone, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a picture of that, all right? Take it out, take a picture, all right? Because you're going to be thinking about this this week. <clears throat> We're going to make sure that you do that. Now, <clears throat> when I was working through mine, because I chose not to answer these until today, um, it was so interesting to, especially number three, um, like I have different people in my life that do that, but does anybody else tend to avoid going to those people so that you don't have to deal with it? Is it just me? Um, I'll never forget, uh, Terry and I were driving back from a retreat together, and I was sitting there going, you know, I need to ask somebody about an issue in my life, and so I'll ask Terry, and if, if you don't know Terry, Terry's the guy that just gets to the point, and so I was expecting him to coddle me and work around the issue, and he just went, boom, and I remember sitting there in the car going, But I remember how true it was to have those things told to us. And I I think that's one of the key things about what they were saying is those friends in our lives that do that. Now, if you look at 2 Corinthians, the other great part about what Paul does, if you remember right back in chapter 2, one of the things that he did was he actually avoided conflict for the gospel, for the kingdom. I do think there's a wonderful reality sometimes to hold your mouth. In Proverbs 19, it talks about this, that there's something special about someone that understands this God that's in control, and I don't have to address everything right now. But I think there's this other side of it where Paul finally gets to the point, and he's now going to be, as a a loving father to this group of people in Corinth, he's going to address the issue. Now, here's how I want to bring this thing to an end. I'm going to bring Terry and Sheila up, actually. And uh, they're going to help us as we, as we leave this week to begin to cement in some of these, uh, some of these truths uh, that we've been talking about this morning. Um, I don't know how many of you know Terry and Sheila. Um, uh, Terry, is a, a, he's become a dear friend. Like I said, I, I love, we've been able to have some very honest conversations. Um, the thing I love about Sheila is that uh, she can say sometimes some of the things that so desperately needed to be had but have you ever had a person that tells you that in the very end of it, you tell them thank you? Because she says it's so nice. I love that about her. But I'm going to have them bring everything to, to a close for us. Here's your clicker. Okay. Well, obviously, I'm not the avoider. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. <laughs> um, well, we've been together a little over 30 years and um, a lot of conflict. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Uh, a lot of conflict has happened through those 30 years. And, um, you know, we've been here 12. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's, there's been times where, where conflict has happened for the sake of ministry. And sometimes I've handled that well, and other times I haven't handled it real well. And I look back over our 30 years, and I realize that uh, there's a lot of conflict that I didn't handle well. And... Um, and the one thing, though, that, that I always came back to and that is always on the forefront um, of my conflict resolution, and if any of you have been hurt by me or, or, or maybe we haven't settled conflict well, uh, it's not because I don't want to. It's sometimes I just lack, you know, the ability to do that. And um, I'm not blaming myself, but, but the thing that drives me back to wanting to deal with conflict is the motivation that I, I want to please the Lord. And, um, and so I'm going to let Sheila talk to you about this because 
when I get caught up in my kingdom and my world and I begin seeing things my way, um, it's that reminder of the Spirit of God or, or my wife or dear friend that can confront me and say, Terrence, this about you and your kingdom. And really, what is your desire? Is your desire for you to be right or is your desire to, to please the Lord in this conflict? And so Sheila's going to talk a little bit about what motivates us. And these things are, are the things that motivate us uh, while we're dealing with conflict. Honey. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Todd asked us to kind of help um, bring us to the point of just, the lights are so bright, I feel like I almost need a shade here. <laughs> um, to bring us really to the point of resolve, of what am I resolving to in life when it comes to conflict? Because it's daily, right? We all have conflict daily. <clears throat> uh, and thinking about that, the first things that just flooded my mind, several things, and it's really just from the Word of God, that flood my mind is um, Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all other things will be added to us. We will have conflict. We're going to have struggles, trials, conflict, wonderful things in life. Um, but he says in all of it, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added. Um, I think for me personally, um, a lot of the conflict that I have is inner conflict of my own emotions. And emotions are a very powerful thing. Do you agree? <laughs> they are powerful. Yes, they are. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Jesus, that he has stayed with me for 30 years. Uh, he has been our glue because emotions for me can turn me completely upside down uh, where I can't think straight, stand straight, walk straight. Uh, they can completely turn me upside down. So my desire is that if I want to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, I need Him. So I, I, want, um, I want the Lord to master my emotions. I don't want me to be driven by my own emotions and my own emotions be the, the engine of my life that carries me along and I follow whatever they are demanding because our emotions really can demand, right? They're so strong. But I want the Lord Jesus to be the one who masters my emotions. So that happens as, as I begin to fall on Him in it, that I, I, I come to Him, and as the Scripture says, when my heart is overwhelmed within me, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And where is that rock? I find that rock right down here. <laughs> That's where my rock really is. Because it's when I come here and I fall before Him in the midst of my crazy emotions that want to dictate what I'm going to do or how I'm going to choose or how I'm going to act. It's down where I find my rock. And God meets us right here. And He is the one that is sure, that is steady, that is firm. He is always right side up, right? <laughs> he is right side up 
when my emotions want to turn me upside down. So this is how we've made it through life and through marriage. And I promise you, I know that apart from him being the one uh, that is steady and sure, the resolver of our conflict and our own inner conflict, I don't know where I would be apart from Christ. And he has been our glue. And then I look at the the scripture that Jesus says to all of us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Conflict is very wearying, right? Is that a word? Is is Wearisome. wearisome. And it's heavy. And we don't want to be in it. But Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and listen to this and learn from me and learn from me. I want to help you. I want to help you, Sheila, raise your teenagers. I want to help you be the wife that your husband needs. I want to give you wisdom. He says, come to me and I will I will give you rest, but learn from me. And then the last thing is uh, from James, uh, as we come to him, he's the one who gives us wisdom, right? And listen to this. This is James is on the screen, 3, 16 through 18. He says, so when we come to him, we can count on he's going to give us truth, light, life, wisdom. We can count on that. But he says in, in this scripture, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That is scary and powerful and full of truth. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. And then 18 says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We need his wisdom. All right. So we seek God's kingdom. The second thing she talked about was falling before God, surrendering. Uh, I put a uh, scripture up there, John 15, 5. That's her favorite scripture, uh, one of her favorite scriptures. But that's the vine and the branch and abiding in Christ. And we can't do that on our own strength. We need the spirit of God within us to give us the humility and the power right? To say, God, not my kingdom, but your kingdom. Now, help me say the things in the right tone and the right attitude that comes forth from your truth, because your spirit's going to bear that to me so that I can have a reasonable conversation with my wife or whoever uh, that this conflict is over. And the spirit of God can actually lead that resolution if we depend on him. And I think a lot of times we we are so uh, trapped and so encamped by this 
conflict and it's rolling around in our minds and we're, we're taking control of that thing and we're trying to figure out what the outcome's gonna be. We're trying to figure out how to control it. And to take that step of faith, to trust God, to say, God, at any point in this conflict, I give it to you. And whatever the result is, I'm trusting you with that result. That is so freeing, guys. And, and for us who've done both, we know how freeing that is, right? And so that's surrendering to the Spirit of God. And then the last things he said was, uh, and I'll close with this verse in Romans because it goes along with James 3, is the wisdom is if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And Paul, who also wrote 2 Corinthians that we're talking about, he knew this was so critical and key to the gospel. And this has been a lesson hard learned by me through the years. And uh, there's been uneasiness. And a lot of times, sometimes you don't realize who you've uh, hurt in conflict or, or maybe they've hurt you. And, and that's why I think Paul said, if it all possible with you, if you know about it, you go make peace, whatever the cost, again, depending on God. So here are three questions that we're going to end with in our time. And I'm going to pray over us um, as we're thinking through this. But the first one is identify a place of conflict in your life because conflict is unavoidable reality in our lives. Second one, do you believe that conflict can serve as a catalyst for change and an opportunity for spiritual relational growth? And then three, ask God this week to reveal to you the problem in that conflict. All right, let's take a few minutes, take a picture of that, write it down, whatever. And let's take a few minutes to uh, process that and then I'll pray for our time. And then we've got a special uh, part in our service where uh, we've got a missionary family that we're going to be sending off today. So uh, take a few minutes and uh, we'll wrap it up. Well, Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that it is abounding in both your mercy and grace are so abundant to us, so undeserving as we receive it day in and day out throughout the day. God, thank you that you're in control and we can trust you, that you're a loving Father 
who has made, in some cases, conflict come to the surface so that we can trust you to deal with it and to solve it. Lord, I think of all the situations that are in this room this morning, whether it's been in family or whether it's been in marriages or whether it's been in the church, unresolved conflict, the, the disasters, the brokenheartedness, the deceit. I think of all the brokenness because we know the lie of the enemy is that our sin only affects us, but we know that's a lie. And yet, God, you've brought things to the surface, even this morning, that we need to confess to you, first and foremost. We need to seek your forgiveness, and then we need to go and seek the forgiveness of others. And Lord, we know that that brings glory to you in our conflict. That brings a beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you go before us every day, pleading to the Father on our behalf, in our sin, undeserving, yet you go to the Father, deserving of all of His love, all of His forgiveness on our behalf. And yet we choose to remain in shackles and prison by our bitterness and our anger and our selfishness. Many times as I do to you, because you know me, I think I can handle it on my own or I'm going to suppress it. And I stay even more in prison. And you call to me softly. Sometimes, sometimes you yell at me and tell me to come to you. Seek forgiveness in you first and then go. Where it's all, at all possible, you go and seek peace with others. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for redeeming bad decisions that we've made. Thank you for redeeming hurt situations that we've caused, hurtful in every way. Thank you, God, that you are good and faithful and loving. May we bless and please you as we deal with our conflicts this week, as we even deal with our conflicts today. Give us the courage. Give us the Ability to speak the truth in love, but bring forth the truth today and bring forth healing in Jesus' name. Amen.